This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome, and thanks everyone for joining us. I'm Megan Day. I'm a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, and I'm co-author with Mike Utrecht of the book Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. I'm moderating today's conversation, Marx Was Right, Economics for the 99%. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank the organizer and sponsor of this teach-in, Haymarket Books. It's critical that we support independent publishers and organizations during this time. You can do this in a couple of ways. First, you can buy books directly from Haymarket. Second, you can join the Haymarket Book Club. And third, if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, via Venmo, there's going to be a card on the screen about how to do this. And the people posting that information in the YouTube chat as well. This video will be recorded and shared afterwards on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the channel. Like this video now, share it with as many people as possible. I want to let everyone know about some upcoming events in the Haymarket Livestream series. On Thursday, August 27th, it's going to be Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm, with Yaramar Bonilla, Marisol Lebron, and Molly Crabapple. And on Tuesday, September 1st, Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, and Fiction, with Arundhati Roy and Nick Estes. You can register for these upcoming events on Eventbrite, and the links to sign up are going to be posted in the chat. A few housekeeping items. For folks who want to follow the chat, we suggest that you use the top chat option rather than the live chat. People who violate our community guidelines are going to have their comments deleted as quickly as we're able. And if we have any technical issues during this event, we ask for your patience. If your stream gets choppy, it might help to reduce your image quality. People will give instructions on how to do so in the chat. If our YouTube feed is interrupted for any reason, you may need to navigate back to the YouTube Haymarket Books page. The feed should resume there in case of interruption. This event will have live closed captions. To enable captions, click the CC button on the bottom of the video. If you're having any trouble with the closed captions, there will be a link in the chat to the raw caption feed for deaf and hard of hearing people. Thanks to Catherine with White Coat Captioning for doing our live captioning tonight. Finally, we should have some time for Q&A, so please post your questions in the YouTube chat window as they come up, and we'll get to those later in the program. Now, thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker and begin our program. Hadas Tier is an activist, writer, socialist, and my coworker at Jacobin Magazine. And today we are celebrating the launch of her new book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. Over to you, Hadas. Hey, thank you so much, Megan, um, and thanks to the team at Haymarket Books, not only for putting on this event, but also for putting so much work into getting this book out. Um, and thanks, obviously, to everyone that's tuning in. Um, publishing a book in the middle of a pandem pandemic means we don't get to see each other in person, which is too bad. Uh, but it does mean we get to have people tune in from faraway places and who I would not have otherwise had a chance to be in contact with. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that. And um, this is obviously a really important time, uh, I think, to be talking about capitalism. We're in the midst of uh, an unprecedented crisis of the economy, of racial justice, of health. And these are not separate or coincidental crises, but they're part of one inhumane system which values wealth over lives. Um, the same system that's taught cops that it's okay to murder black men and women with impunity, and that has responded to you know, the police shooting of a black man in his car in front of his children with riot peace, uh, police instead of justice um, is the same system that has systematically dismantled public hospitals, neglected schools in neighborhoods where poor and people of color live. Um, it's the same system that's forcing teachers and children back to unsafe schools uh, simply because it's time to get back to business as usual and um, parents are being forced to work instead of being paid to stay home with their children in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and as we know, um, you know, people of color have been particularly hard hit during the pandemic. Um, just an incredible and disproportionate loss of life 
Um, more than one out of 2,000 Black Americans have already died of COVID. And um, in terms of economic consequences as well, um, people of color are hit on the one hand by being disproportionately represented among essential workers who are forced to put their lives on the line for the sake of keeping the economy going. And then on the other hand, um, by those facing layoffs on top of debt uh, with few savings to fall back on. Uh, and in that context, you know, the police violence and murder that um, as an ongoing feature of, of this um, society is part of the same story of, you know, second class citizenship in a system of racialized capitalism. So we're living through these unprecedented times, um, but all of the seemingly abnormal things that are happening actually exist within very normal parameters of how capitalism works. And um, so my book looks at the system of capitalism and how its economic imperative keeps in place um, a deeply oppressive system. Um, you know, in times of crisis are, are a particularly important moment to try to get our heads around the economy, how it works, why it doesn't work, or more accurately, who it works for and who it doesn't work for. The reason that I wrote my book is because I believe very strongly, well, I believe that Marx was right, and I'll get to that in a moment, but just as importantly, I believe that questions of the economy have to be in the hands of regular people, that we can't leave it up to the so-called experts who, you know, so far have done an amazing job of driving millions of people into destitution in the wealthiest country in the world, um, and of course, billions um, around the world in, into destitution, um, that regular people like you and me have to make demands, make changes, and ultimately overturn the way that the economy works. And to do that, you know, we really have to get away from the idea that it's too complicated for us to understand. And in fact, that assumption benefits the status quo. And it's not a co coincidence that we're told in a million different ways throughout our lives that trying to understand the economy is not up to us. And I think that's particularly true of women and of people of color and of working class people and other oppressed groups. And part of what motivated me to write this book um, and to really delve into economics myself is, you know, having been a Marxist and a socialist myself for, for over 20 years now, it became clear to me early on in my own political journey that even radical economies mostly been dominated by white men, very good white men, in fact, but that we need to break through to a wider audience if we're going to have a movement that's broad enough and deep enough to make change. Um, so my book aims to provide an introduction to capitalist economy through a Marxist lens. Karl Marx, uh, even though he was writing 150 years ago, I think made an indispensable contribution to radical economy and to radical movements trying to understand and ultimately dismantle the world of the 1%. So that's why we call this launch Marx was right, because he was so right. Um, and literally, we're seeing that you know, every day in every way. Um, through this current crisis that exposes really just the deep rot at the core of capitalism. Um, so my goal for this book is to, to try to make a contribution to a growing movement that's developing where millions of people, many of whom were radicalized and gained confidence from Bernie Sanders runs for president um, and, and other um, radical socialists who now identify with socialism uh, so that we can take kind of the broad socialist aims and deepen and develop the kind of analysis um, that we need to understand what we're up against. I think, you know, knowing the nature of the beast makes it possible to develop smarter strategies on how to tackle the beast. Uh, so in, in the few minutes that I have in my opening remarks, obviously I'm not gonna crystallize all of Marxism in a few minutes. You're gonna have to read the book for that. Um, but I'll just bullet out, you know, three basic ideas to start us off. Um, one is value, one is profit, and one is competition. And then uh, Megan and I, along with uh, your questions from home, are going to flush out, you know, what these ideas mean for us today. Um, so all three of these concepts, value, profits, competition, are rooted in what Marx calls the circuit of capital, basically just the process through which capital uh, goes through. And he summarized that process in a simple formula. And I promise the book um, has barely any formulas in it. And where uh, there are formulas, my, my friend and very talented illustrator, Tanya Guerra, was kind enough to illustrate them for us, um, as she also did the book cover. Uh, 
um, which is I, this is a, one instance where I, I really hope that people judge a book by its cover. Um, so the basic circuit of capital that Marx explains with, uh, with a formula is M to C to M with a little doohickey on it. Um, I've been told the proper name for that is M prime. Um, but, uh, the, but the, the gist is M stands for money that the capitalists invest. Commodities are what's produced with that money. And then the M with a doohickey on it, the M prime, is more money at the end of the process that the capitalist ends up with. And that's kind of um, capitalism in a nutshell. And basically, Marx says, you know, it would be absurd and empty for capitalists to engage in just MCM, where they, you know, invest a certain amount of money and then they get the same amount of money at the end. Nobody would invest anything if that was the case. Um, and actually, that's precisely what happens in periods of economic crisis when it's clear to capitalists that they're not going to make a profit, so they just don't invest. Um, so capitalism really, like the, the heart of capitalism really rests in that one doohickey at the end of the equation. Um, where does it come from? Who gets it? What makes it appear or disappear? Um, and that's what I want to delve into for, for a few minutes. So, so that doohickey at the end is added value. But, you know, what is value exactly? And I think what's important is that under capitalism, it means value means a very specific thing. It's not how actually valuable something is uh, to humanity or, you know, in general. If we assign values to things under capitalism based on how useful they are, then, you know, obviously like water and bread would be a lot more costly than diamonds. Um, so what Marx did is he distinguished between a commodity's use value, what it's used for, and its exchange value, how much, um, you know, value uh, is in, in chair. Um, you know, the use value is that you need to sit on the chair. The exchange value is that you need to, um, you know, how much can you exchange it for? So, um, and just to say value is not synonymous with prices uh, because prices can fluctuate uh, wildly even when the basic value uh, doesn't change. And you can read more about that in the book. It's um, a little bit more complicated than I'd like to get into right now. But the important point is that there's a base value around which prices can fluctuate. So even with fluctuations, like a loaf of bread is not going to be worth more than a new car. Um, they're just, they have different um, intrinsic values to them. And what determines that value, the, the value by which things exchange in relation to each other, uh, is how much labor time goes into making it. So the value of a chair is determined by how long it takes to produce it, which also includes how long to, it takes to produce its inputs, uh, the finished wood, the machinery, and so on. And that's in a nutshell what Marx, and actually most, Marx didn't make this up, most of the classical economists um, as well called it the labor theory of value. Um, so in a very oversimplified example, if it takes about a thousand times longer to make a car than it does to make a loaf of bread, then the car is roughly a thousand times more valuable than a loaf of bread. Um, and... Um, just, just for fun, so I'm not accused of being too one-sided, I'll quote Adam Smith on this one, but he says, the real price of everything, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it is the toil and trouble of acquiring it, you know, the labor that goes into to making it. So, so the point of capitalist, capitalism, for the capitalists, um, is to increase that value that they start with by producing more value to make a profit. And the standard conventional wisdom is that this profit is produced basically through the cunning of the market. You know, capitalists have a bright idea, a mission to Mars, a pretty iPhone, um, and they know how to market it and they know how to buy materials cheap and make some, you know, sell dear and make some thrifty bucks um, is, is um, a lot of the con conventional wisdom. But the reality is that, um, sure, there's some marketing genius that went into corralling us all into, you know, the iPhone vice grip. That has more to do with why iPhones might be more or less marketable than Androids, but it doesn't tell you very much about why both companies are able to increase their wealth tremendously over time. Um, and that is what Marx referred to as uh, the seemingly magical goose of capitalism that lays these golden eggs. Um, and this, a spoiler alert is that it's not actually magic. Uh, but that extra value comes not from the marketplace, but out of a production process that creates more wealth than it begins with. So the secret hidden within the production process 
is what Marx called a special commodity of labor power. That's our ability to work. Uh, the ability to work has become a commodity under capitalism, which capitalists buy from us in exchange for a wage. So the wage is our labor power's exchange value. That's how much of our labor power, that's how much our labor power is bought and sold for. Um, so, okay, so the exchange value of labor power is paid out in a wage, but the use value of labor power is that it's a creator of value. And these are two very different things. So a worker is paid one thing in wages, uh, but then normally she'll create a lot more value during her work shift than what she is paid in her wages. But we, we enter into this arrangement with the bosses where they own our time and our ability to labor, our labor power during that time. And so what we actually produce for them, um, even if it's much more than what they paid us, uh, is theirs to keep. So the example I use in my book is Starbucks, because let's say they pay you $120 for your eight-hour shift, but you can probably make $120 worth of fancy coffee in about an hour or two. Uh, but you can't, after two hours, just like throw down your towel and say, okay, fair is fair. I've made the money uh, back that you've paid me. Um, your labor is theirs for another six hours. Uh, the rest of your shift, you're basically working for free. And that extra value produced during this stolen time is surplus value, as Marx called it. And that's really the basis of capitalist profits. Um, so the, the last point that I'll touch on in the sort of like rough sketch of capitalism is competition, because I think that's really, um, you know, at the heart of what makes capitalism function. So on the one hand, we have this relationship between capitalists and workers, right, which is one of exploitation, where they pay us one thing, but then they extract a far greater value uh, from what we produce for them. But then there's this other battle happening simultaneously, which is between the capitalists themselves. Um, because basically, if each capitalist had their own market, then, all they, then it would be pretty simple. All they would need to do is put that nifty, you know, goose that lays golden eggs to work produce some commodities, sell them on the market, and boom, they get their profits. Um, but in reality, between each dash of that formula of the M to the C to the M doohickey, uh, there's a question mark for capitalists. Will they be able to convert their money into the commodities uh, they need in production? Like, will they be able to get the labor power and the inputs? And then uh, more often, the bigger problem for them is, can they convert those commodities into more money? Um, if they make their goods, will they find buyers for them? And for this, they have to engage in a competitive struggle with other capitalists. Uh, and this is the part where, you know, the question to, to whatever extent there's like a marketing genius or whatever comes into play um, in terms of competing with other capitalists for market share. But it still actually plays a relatively small part because the reality is that companies like Samsung, which produces Android phones, um, have been able to produce them more cheaply, and that's gotten them a greater market share than Apple has. Um, so at a minimum, you know, basically each company has to sell their items at or below the price that everyone else is selling their items for. If most of your competitors are making 100 trinkets in an hour, and you can make them in half an hour, then you're ahead of the game, you can sell them cheaper, and you can undercut your competitors. But if everyone's making them in a half an hour and you're still using the old trinket making machinery that only produces 100 trinkets in an hour, um, then you'll be spending twice as much money on labor costs to produce the same amount of goods. And so you'll either have to charge more uh, and therefore lose buyers, or you can charge what everyone else is charging but operate at a loss. And either way, you're likely to go out of business. So this forces companies to produce as cheaply as possible mostly by reducing the cost of labor um, through cutting wages and benefits or by introducing labor-saving technology, um, which means that workers are producing more goods in less time. And that's a basic competitive imperative um, that drives every aspect of decision-making under capitalism. Companies need to keep making profits, and that way they can invest those profits in the most advanced technologies that they, they can then pour into the next round of production and produce more goods faster and more efficiently than their competitors. And that's why companies are const constantly have to move forward. You can't just be like, oh, well, I you know, produce the iPhones and they're snazzy and everybody wants them. 
because pretty soon everybody else is in, coming in on the market, um, and you have to constantly moving move ahead if you're a capitalist. Um, you know, which is why, like, when we look at some of the evil policies that come from, you know, the kinds of things that bosses do, um, it's it's it is indeed evil, but it's also, you know, um, not in their DNA. It's in the DNA of capitalism, and I think that's important. Um, so the ugly, you know, the in in the best case scenario, I'll start with this can drive technological innovation, and that's one of the things that proponents of capitalism argue is one of the like main like positive impacts of capitalism. But you know that's mixed, and I, we could talk more about that in discussion. But the ugly underside of this competition means that workers are driven to continue to produce a, a profit at any cost. Um, so you you know to reopen meatpacking factories in completely unsafe conditions uh, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, or to send teachers back to work in you know what are essentially COVID petri dishes because parents are needed at their jobs to keep profits churning. Um, you know th- these are the decisions um, that uh, that drive capitalism. So so those are in, in very broad brushstrokes the ABCs of how capitalism works. It's a system. It's primarily concerned with producing value, not in the sense of what's valuable to humans, but in the sense of, uh, you know, what can can be sold and make a profit. Uh, It's a system that produces that value through the exploitation of workers for the benefit of the bosses. Uh, And then these bosses are in a death match with each other in order to gain market share. And it's a death match that workers uh, end up paying the price for. Um, So that's not a super uplifting place to stop. And I apologize for that. But I think it's important to know uh, what you're up against, an unthinking, unfeeling profit machine, basically, uh, if you want to know how to stop it. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for now. So that all of that is just in normal times. Those are sort of the constant perpetual features of capitalism. Obviously, we're not currently living in normal times. We're living during coronavirus times. So I want to talk a little bit about capitalism and coronavirus. One thing the place that I want to start is that the pandemic has really sort of exposed the sharp outlines of capitalism's ugliest realities, I think, for a lot of people, including a lot of people who are not particularly class conscious people who are just making basic observations about the world. So for for one example, you started to hear in the spring almost immediately when the economic shutdown accompanied the, you know, um, realization that the, the virus was actually spreading, spreading through the United States. You started to hear lots of people noticing that those workers who were categorized as essential workers and were therefore still working were actually uh, often not the people who were paid the most in society. And a lot of people sort of be like, well, you know, now that you phrase it that way, um, why is this labor that's supposedly indispensable to keeping society running not, why is it compensated so poorly by comparison? And um, Additionally, you started to see a lot of essential workers lacking uh, protective equipment while simultaneously being hailed as heroes. And and a lot of people started observing again, it's like, well, if these workers are, you know, actually keeping society running, then why is it that their bosses are not shelling out to make sure that they're protected while they're protecting the rest of us? Um, and then at the same time, something else was happening with non-essential workers, too. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you had a lot of white collar professional um, non-essential workers um, like you and me who are able to sort of work from home on our computers and uh, w- without you know interruption. But you also had a lot of non-essential workers um, up and down the income scale uh, who lost their jobs. And now we have mass mass unemployment. And I think, you know, and now that we have mass unemployment and we don't have adequate you know welfare there, the situation is such that the the lines at the food banks are growing longer, and the landlords have been given the green light to evict. And you're starting to see a you know housing cra- an incipient housing crisis. And to a lot of people, I think that that sort of begs the question, which is, well, the observation that people sort of arrived at have been arriving at organically is, well, not all work may be essential to the functioning of society, but working is clearly essential for people in order for them to live, Uh, unless, of course, they're being compensated in the form of, you know, social spending or uh, welfare to compensate for their wages. So I say all this to say that many people, I think, are starting to piece some of this together themselves. Obviously, they could benefit from a healthy dose of Marxist political education because this stuff doesn't really crystallize unless you start to really study it. And so I want to ask you, how does Marx's 
explanation of economic coercion and exploitation help explain the treatment of both essential workers and non-essential workers? And there's just the overall expendability of workers' lives in the face of corporate profitability during the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think those are excellent points. And I think the whole concept of the essential worker um, is um, a really important a really important concept in terms of what it's exposed and the fact that we even are using, you know, the term essential workers as an admission of, you know, what, how society works. Um, you know, certainly at some point I started noticing that like for all the talk of essential workers being heroes, that it really started like sounding like just a buzzword and that in reality, what essential worker means is expendable worker um, in the complete lack of safety precautions and um, hazard pay, uh, not to mention regular pay, um, you know, that is a living wage, et cetera. So you have this, like, there's an important nugget there that I think, as, as you said, Megan, is not lost on many people, that workers are essential to running society, you know, that we have billionaires right now are making a killing during this pandemic. Um, I think uh, was it Bezos who recently became a trillionaire? Um, you know, at the, but at the end of the day, you know, you have grocery workers are actually more important to society than Elon Musk's, you know, Mars fantasies or Amazon workers and delivery people are actually the people who we depend on and whose lives are on the line. While Jeff Bezos, you know, is just is the one making ungodly profits. You know, we have transportation workers, we have teachers, we have healthcare workers, and so on. And the system can't function without them. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's an essential aspect of capitalism that is usually convenient for capitalism and for capitalists like ideologues um, to, to overlook. And right now it's um, un, undeniable. So, so I think we have that on the one hand, but then we have this reality, um, as you said, that despite these lofty celebrations, the profit motive remains. And it's, you know, workers are inputs into a production process. That is how we're, it's, you know, it's workers and it's the earth, you know, raw materials from the earth are inputs for, for capitalism. And so basically um, capitalists will pay as little as they can get away with and squeeze as much as they can get away with um, in order to um, come out with more value at the end of their process. Um, and so all these debates right now, you know, about the stimulus package uh, also get to the heart of this. Republicans in particular have been livid that un expanded unemployment benefits might pay people more than their jobs without asking the question, like, why do their, pay, their jobs pay so little um, is actually the problem. But, but also, you know, the idea that that provides a disincentive to work gets at exactly this you know, economic coercion that capitalism is based on. You would think that precisely in the midst of a pandemic, you would want people to stay home and not have an incentive to work. Um, but capitalism, in order to function and continue to roll forward, needs a constant economic coercion uh, to force us to work on their terms for their profits. And I, you know, I go through in the book, um, I start with a little bit of a kind of primer on uh, history of capital, capitalism, how capitalism arose, and why it is that this economic coercion, um, you know, came about, that it's not just a natural state for, for human beings to be in haves and have nots and people that have to work and people that don't have to work. Uh, but that this was a, a, a process that took a long time where, you know, masses of people were uh, pulled apart from their land and from their ability to sustain themselves and their families, et cetera. So. Um, yeah, I do think that this really lifts the mask off uh, a lot of things that, um, you know, the talking heads of capitalists would rather we, we didn't pay too much attention to, but is impossible to avoid right now. One Marxist concept, it's an elemental Marxist concept that you already explained, which I think can be difficult to grasp at first, but then when you do, it's actually extraordinarily illuminating is the difference between use value and exchange value. So let's try to apply that to the pandemic situation. How has a system based on deep inequality and the prioritization of use values over exchange values driven the catastrophic reality of the pandemic? Yeah, I think, I think it really gets to the heart of it. Um, you know, for most of us, what we care about is use values, right? What we, what we get 
from something. I care about whether this is a chair or a loaf of bread before I sit on it. Um, you know, that bread is to eat, roses are to smell. Um, every, um, every item has a use to me and that's what I'm concerned with. But for capitalists, they're actually only concerned with exchange values. I mean, there may be a few exceptional, you know, passionate small businesses, et cetera, that have a some kind of a mission where they wanted to create the most beautiful boats or whatever. I don't know. Um, but, um, but mostly for capitalists, um, what matters is how much value they get for selling X, whether it's an X number of chairs or an X number of roses, they don't care as long as they know that they can sell those things and they get X amount of money for it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a question of quantitative gain, not qualitative gain. Um, and if you think about what that means in human terms, it's just catastrophic. Um, for you and I, the value of a house is to live in it. You know, for capitalists, it's the exchange value of a house that matters, you know, to sell it, to rent it, to flip it, what have you, so that they can make a profit. Um, it's a commodity to buy and sell and to profit off of it. And, and that's an, and nothing more. Um, you know, so we have a housing market instead of houses for people to live in. And, um, you know, it should be absolutely illegal to evict people in the middle of a pandemic. It's just like mind blowingly um, upsetting. Uh, but that's a, but that is even a very low bar. It's just not okay for people to have to choose between um, eating, between getting medicine um, and paying their rent. Um, and the stories that have come out about evictions that are now escalating to catastrophic levels um, are absolutely horrific. Um, I, re I recommend people read this story that the Washington Post uh, posted about a week ago to Zdaya Barr. She's a 40-year-old woman in Houston, Texas, and along with her boyfriend and um, daughter and grandchild, as well as her son and their family, they were all evicted in the middle of a pandemic, um, in, middle, in the middle actually of a spike of COVID cases in Houston. And now they're couch surfing, um, looking for jobs at drive-throughs, which are the only places hiring. Um, and I, I'll just quote from her for a minute because I think it's she says it best. Um, but she says, "It's been strange going on these interviews. I'm trying to present myself like I've got it all together when things are falling apart. I force myself to act cheerful. I know how to put on that good face. I used to work for a nonprofit, and I'd get dressed up for these big functions and sit at a table with millionaires." They would ask for my opinion or invite me to their homes for lunch, and I'd act like I was one of them. I'd look at their lifestyle and think, hey, one day that could be me. But I'm 40 now, and the distance between that world and mine is still getting bigger. It's harder to put on that face. It's harder to pretend. The stock market is still going up, right? Meanwhile, everybody I know is out of a job. Everybody is behind on the rent. Most of us are becoming homeless. I'm worth nothing on paper, and who's going to rent to me? I'm a second chance case. I've got no home address, no employer, no car, no credit cards, nothing in savings. Um, and I think that, that that really sums it up is that, you know, um, houses are exchange values. People are worth, you know, what you can, what they're worth on paper. Um, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, Megan, the federal moratorium on evictions is now expired. And Tuesday's story is about to be repeated in the tens of thousands and within months, um, likely in the tens of millions. Um, and you can repeat the same point across the system. You know, what happens when healthcare is treated as an exchange value to buy and sell instead of something that we depend on to live? You know, you get these drugs for, for COVID that are now being remdesivir, I don't know how to, never know how to pronounce that, um, is priced over $3,000 per treatment, um, despite the fact that it's like a $10 price tag to produce the drug. And despite the fact that all of this public money went into research and development. Um, you get scientists having to beg for money for vaccine research while pharmaceutical companies are racing to patent their research. Um, you have countries starting in on bidding wars basically with each other to buy up supplies of vaccines instead of having like a desperately needed um, global collaboration and coordination. Um, you know, and that's, those are the uh, built-in priorities of a for-profit system. Uh, and then, you know, it's on us to organize and fight, to nationalize and bring under public control, or in some cases, keep under public control uh, the basic necessities of life. 
I'll just add on to that, that I've been doing a little research for an article that I'll write for the next issue of Jacobin that's going to be about the eviction crisis. And I spoke to someone um, named Karen Smith, who was also interviewed by the Washington Post, uh, because I I saw her on Twitter sort of interacting in in the mentions of a Twitter philanthropist. If you want to see what a failed state looks like, go look at the mentions of someone who calls himself a Twitter philanthropist and does sweepstakes giveaways to poor people right now. Search the word evicted or or um, hungry in in the Twitter mentions. It's um it's it's pretty upsetting. And so I, I spoke to her, and, and the story is quite similar to the one that you just told. But one detail stands out, which is that this woman that I spoke to has a, a doctorate from Harvard. Which, if there's one thing that's supposed to be insurance in our sort of meritocratic society, I would think that that would be it. So if you can imagine the the horror that she and her high needs son are going through right now on the verge of eviction, and imagine that magnified for all the people who have nothing near the security of a doctorate from Harvard. I think it's worth stressing that the situation that we're in right now is actually much bigger and scarier than I then it appears that a lot of us are actually actually understand at the moment. It does feel like there's a mass sort of denial, like a calm before the storm kind of quality to it. But of course, for many people who are living it, it's, um, it's impossible to ignore. Well, I just want to move on from that. I mean, we're going to stick on the, on the subject of the pandemic, but we're going to go back to some of the other found, foundational concepts that you brought up earlier. So one subject that I have written about is how abandoning our hospital system to the dictates of the free market has, for decades, has basically starved it to the point of failure. And that was before the pandemic. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us that hospitals are overwhelmed and understaffed and you know not provided providing their workers with adequate protective equipment to protect workers and to protect patients and so on and so forth. But that's just one example. So And yet we're hearing from our leaders endlessly about the wonders of the free market and how competition for profits is going to spur the innovation that we need to end the crisis and so on and so forth. How did free market fundamentalism get us into this mess and why won't it get us out of this mess? Yeah, absolutely. And I I would just add, you know, to the to the issue of the public hospitals um, in New York City, where I live. Uh, where more than one out of 400 residents has died of COVID. Um, the New York Times reported a few weeks back, and you know this, this story really should have been a national scandal, but instead it's just like another day in the life of capitalism. Uh, but they reported that patients at um, some of the public community hospitals were three times more likely to die as patients at hospitals in the wealthiest parts of the city. Um, And this comes, like you you said, Megan, um, after years of the public hospital system being systematically dismantled um, and and private, well-endowed hospitals that primarily cater to the rich make up the majority of hospital beds now in the city. Um, So you had this, you know, just unbelievable stark divide between the public hospitals where patients were left unattended and understaffed wards Some died simply because there was no one there to help them get to the bathroom, and eventually they removed their own oxygen masks to go to the bathroom. There were instances where patients, um, there weren't enough sedatives, and they would wake up from a coma alone and unsupervised and instinctively pull out the oxygen tubes that were keeping them alive. Um, The public uh, hospitals relied on these old, um, still relying, I should say, on old, um, not fully functional ventilators. Um, They had no dialysis machines or access to experimental drugs like remdesivir that I mentioned. Um, They didn't have enough staff to turn patients uh, on their stomachs, which is a very basic strategy to help patients breathe. Uh, The doctors and nurses there have been worked to a complete breaking point. Um, And meanwhile, you have these private hospitals in Manhattan that have heart, lung, bypass machines, self-turning beds, specialized drugs, and they had a completely different outcome. Um, You know, so we're talking about thousands, uh, probably tens of thousands of, of, need, of lives that were, that, were the, uh, that were lost as a result of poverty, not as a result of COVID. Um, and, and these numbers break down, uh, you know, uh, very much correlate along lines of race and class. So we have in New York right now, in New York City, five hospital beds for every thousand residents in Manhattan, but only 1.8 beds per 1,000 residents in Queens, 2.2 beds in Brooklyn, 2.4 beds in the Bronx. Um, And you might not be surprised to know that the majority of Manhattan residents are white, the majority of Queens, Bronx, and Brooklyn residents are not white, 
median incomes in the Bronx, for instance, is $38,000 a year. In Manhattan, it's $82,000 a year. So, you know, I, I completely agree that the market and the privatization of everything, particularly healthcare in this instance, has left us completely incapable of handling a pandemic. But it's also just like insane to me that on the level of just producing the basic goods and distribution of those goods that we need, um, that's supposed to be what capitalism expels at and what the market is for. Uh, but the market could barely produce enough toilet paper during this pandemic, uh, let alone medical equipment and drugs. You know, there's this story that PBS reported on um, that was uh, crazy about the, the state of Illinois uh, basically in March wrote this like shot in the dark email to a thousand random small businesses, most of which had nothing to do with healthcare, asking if anyone had any access to uh, pers- you know, PPE, like person protective gear for healthcare workers. And the email was, you know, they sent it to like random b- small businesses. And the email was answered by this guy who operated a moving business who happened to know a guy in China who was able to like through his contacts cobble together enough contracts one assembly line at a time across many factories to make one and a half million masks. But to get these masks, the like all these like local government bureaucrats had to go through crazy hoops and cut red tape and so on. And ultimately, like the state comptroller drove a check for three million dollars a couple hundred miles to meet this guy who knew a guy at a McDonald's parking lot. I'm not kidding uh, to hand over the money. Um, you know, but this like bizarro drama was necessary because, you know, the state of Louisiana was already offering $2 million more for those masks. Um, and the state of Illinois had already gone through the experience of losing a contract for 300 ventilators overnight when the state of New York went directly to the supplier and purchased the the ventilators at double the price. You know, this is the insanity of our free market at work. This is what capitalism does in the face of a public health crisis. And if, you know, imagine if we had a planned economy where everything but the most bare essentials was shut down for as long as it takes, all of society's resources would go to protecting those workers that have to still work, providing resources to everyone as they work or stay at home, um, and, you know, have an international collaboration to fund, develop, and effectively distribute medical equipment and vaccines uh, throughout the world. Um, that would be an entire, you know, that would be the entire purpose of the economy, what we would be doing um, if we had a centralized and coordinated economy. Um, you know, I, I personally think that's a much better idea. Um, but instead, we have this uh, wild west of a free market. Yeah, to follow up on that, I'll say that, you know, the, the ideology that props up capitalism promises efficiency. But when you look even just a little bit closer, actually, it's total chaos. Um, and one of the quotes that you chose to include in your book that I really like is from Bhaskar Sankara, who said, uh, the editor of Jacobin, who, who said that capitalism is a bunch of um, micro rationalities that, that results in macro irrationality. And the micro rationalities, of course, being that prudent, uh, you know, capitalists who are prudent managers of their own bottom lines will, in fact, make rational decisions about how to best increase profit. Um, but the overall result is, like I said, co- complete uh, chaos. Um, so actually, I want to I uh, take a moment to turn to some questions from people who are watching this. And then I have a final question for you, Hadas, but we'll save it to the end. Some of these questions are really good. And actually, uh, three of them stood out to me as being quite related to each other. So I'm just going to read them off and then let you respond uh, how you see fit. From Marjorie Williams, uh, Marjorie says, how do we value, say, a healthcare worker or any hospitality or restaurant worker, anyone who isn't making something? And uh, Steve Lee said, responding to Marjorie above, not all labor produces surplus value. These are what Marx called unproductive workers because they do not produce surplus value. Examples, public school teachers, et cetera. How do these fit? And then there's a third question from Sam Friedman, which is, what are your thoughts about social reproduction debates within Marxism? So you can see the, the through line that I'm drawing between all of these things. Uh, how, how would you respond to those, Hadass? Um, okay, well, so there's some, some complicated issues within all of that, but I'll, I'll take a stab at, um, at that a, a bit. Um, one is, yeah, it's true, Marx kind of distinguished between productive and unproductive labor. Um, and not as a value statement, but just as purely like, you know, who who are the workers that produce value for capitalism? Um, and that's where you can see um, in a very 
um, clear sense the process of exploitation taking place. Um, it's not it's not as clear in a lot of other instances. Um, but he but he did make the case that um, you know it's not it's not a matter of just manual labor versus service services. You know, um, you if you're a hair cutter, you cut a certain amount of heads of hair, um, and that produces a profit um, for for the capitalist. Um, unless you are a small barber shop that you know works for yourself or whatever. But um, but it, the point being that um, different parts of the of the working class function in different parts of the system. However, I think there's two important points to draw out. One is that um, they all work together. They're all part of the same system. So, you know, you may have, um, you know, in one building people that are um, software engineers and people that are, you know, cleaning the hallways of the building and people that are producing the physical products that um, the software goes into. Um, and all each of those people um, operates at a different point within the production process, but they are completely tied in a web of, you know, uh, the, uh, within the, the working class and within that one workplace. Um, so that's, that's one thing to say. Um, and then the, the other thing that I was going to say is that, um, what was I going to say about that? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But then um, within that, so social reproduction, that's um, a whole other ball of wax. And I, I talk about it a little bit in my book, but I think, you know, the the thing I, I will say is that Marx really didn't go very far in talking about this aspect of capitalism. Um, you know, that, that he talked about how um, the, the value of labor power is the, the value of what it takes to reproduce our ability to go in and work the next day. Um, and he kind of mentions as a side note that a lot of, you know, a lot of things go into that, you know, the food, et cetera. But it's not just a matter of how much food do we buy that then will be fed into us so that we can go, you know, be functional the next day. But it's also who makes that food. Um, and who, you know, launders the clothes and who, um, et cetera. And that's a whole part of um, the picture that is um, uh, underanalyzed in Marx's original work, but has since been picked up by a lot of uh, Marxists and Marxist feminists since then um, to talk about the important role. And, and I think today that's one of the things that has been clarified, I think, a lot by the pandemic. Um, and you can see um, I mean, really, in my opinion, parents are essential workers, right? Um, and you can see that now in this pandemic that um, when schools shut down and parents are uh, parents actually have to spend all day with their children, that's physical work, and that makes it impossible to do uh, other work at the same time. Um, so yeah, um, and 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 the last thing I will say, this is what I was going to say before that I forgot, um, is that having different relationships to the point of production is both not a value judgment um, as far as Marx was concerned, but it also doesn't always determine um, your power within the system. You know, and I think about transit workers in New York, for instance, um, you know, who went on strike um, a bunch of years ago. Um, and even though they don't produce a tangible thing, when they went out on strike, obviously the entire city shut down. Um, and the entire economy of the city shut down. And you can see similar things happening with teachers right now um, when when schools are shut down as well. Here's a question. It's uh, for both of us. It's from a listener, Andrew. The, uh, the question is, how do you think the shift to working from home will impact the increasing sense of alienation of workers? And what will this impact be on, on trade unions? Um, I'd like to take a just a brief stab and then hear what you have to say, Hadass. Uh, I have been thinking about this a little bit. I mean, first of all, like like I said earlier, a lot of people can't work from home, and and they therefore, in many cases, are either they're either working in a dangerous conditions and are not adequately provided for, or they're not working, in which case they're sort of abandoned on the high seas of capitalism. Um, 
But yeah, there are plenty of people who are in fact working from home who were not before. And in fact, you have seen, I've seen chatter about this, uh, you know, some articles have come out indicating that, especially in the, in the tech sector, there are a lot of bosses who are actually finding that this is perfectly serviceable and that they're not necessarily planning on going back to paying for the overhead of having an office um, and the other sorts of associated costs that you need to put in uh, when you bring people all together when it's not really necessary. In, in that case, maybe the pandemic has sort of accelerated a process that maybe would have already happened in a digitized age. Um, I think that this is um, potentially a major obstacle. Um, I remember when I first read about the 1912 Lawrence textile strike, I was really struck by the fact that a lot of the organizing didn't have to happen at work. A lot of it happened at home because the uh, women who worked in the mills, so actually the whole families, lived in essentially barracks um, that were not far from the mills. And they all lived in the same place and they all worked in the same place. And this was obviously quite common. Marx talks about Marx talks about this at length and Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. They actually identify this as a major weakness of capitalism, that it had sort of created a little army that was then going to be turned against it. You know, this was what they meant when they said that capitalism, well, it's one part of what they meant when they said that capitalism created its own grave diggers. Um, but perhaps uh, capitalists are actually identifying, um, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously, uh, collectively, identifying this weakness and correcting for it. Um, if I were a, you know, a very intelligent, intelligent arch capitalist, I think that I would probably try to correct for this problem of you know, people with the same grievances all uh, being side by side and, and getting to know each other and developing, you know, social relationships that can transform into solidarity. Um, that's not great for them, right? Um, and this, of course, is happening primarily when I say talk about tech workers, obviously, like I said earlier, a lot of these white collar professional workers are more highly paid than other workers who once the pandemic is over, they will be invited back into physical workplaces side by side with each other. But that's not a permanent condition, actually. And if you read more about tech work, you realize that actually a lot of these like you know, oh, Facebook and Apple are sponsoring, you know, boot camps in, um, you know, uh, high schools where mostly like poor kids of color go to school. Isn't that nice of them? Um, this is actually not philanthropy. This is an investment in a cheaper labor force. They're um, sort of like trying to um, promote digital skills in a uh, segment of the working class that is already exploited so that they can continue to exploit that labor. The point being that tech work, for example, is going to get more and more proletarianized over time. And if tech work is simultaneously getting more proletarianized and the workers are becoming more alienated, and this is not exclusive to tech work, but it's a good you know, sort of example, um, and, and more and more isolated from one another, I mean, I do think that's going to be a major obstacle to organizing um, and one that we need to figure out um, strategies to overcome. And maybe these uh, look like, you know, a uh, the old fundamentals of organizing, maybe they look like new organizing strategies. I can't answer that, but I definitely think it's something that we have to keep an eye out for. Hadas, what do you think? Yeah, I, I really agree. I think that's really well, well said. And, um, you know, I mean, I think on the one hand for bosses, there's, there's a tension there for them. I, I don't know if, you know, it's not, it's probably not totally clear cut because on the one hand, they don't, don't have the overhead costs of having us all, you know, in a building, but also more importantly, as you were saying, Megan, like us all fraternizing, what's that word? Fraternizing with each other, um, you know, creating, um, you know, solidarity and, and uh, relationships for us and so on. On the other hand, they also have a deep need to control us and to control our work. Um, and that's easier to do under supervision. Um, depends on the job, you know, some more than others. And obviously there's all sorts of things being built in um, to be able to control us electronically, you know, for us to be, um, you know, logged in at every moment, responding at every, you know, all sorts of things that are being, you know, uh, businesses and industries being um, developed for exactly that purpose. So I think on the one hand, it's like for bosses, um, they are going to, they are getting, you know, smarter on strategizing how to control us um, from the comforts of our own home. Um, and we have to get smarter, um, like you're saying, Megan, about our organizing strategies. And I certainly don't have an answer to that, um, except for to, to agree that that's something that we're going to need to get our heads around. You know, some of it is and I think that there's been, you know, a flourishing of organizing during the pandemic over things like Zoom and 
you know, um, electronic organizing um, that I think we have already learned a lot from. Um, and then there's all the outside of workplace when um, the day comes where we can finally uh, meet up at the bar and, um, and, and organize there. Well, here's the final question. And this is one that I had prepared for you, Hadas. So Marx did not spend his whole life developing all of these theories simply because it was fun to be right, you know? The idea was that gener generations of people who were armed with the truth would be able to struggle to win substantive social change, and this would end unnecessary misery and bring about true equality and democracy, right? Um, the, the typical quote that people like to pluck out from Marx, which I think is probably his most popular quote ever, is that philosophers have only sought to, to understand the world and the point is to change it. So as the inheritors of that long tradition of struggle, not just you and me, but the people who are listening to this, how can Marxist theory inform what kinds of demands we make as a movement in the COVID era and also whatever comes next? See, I totally thought that Marx devoted his life to being able to say, I told you so at the end, but but I, I hear you, I hear what you're saying. Um, no, I think you're right. Um, but, but yes, absolutely. So, you know, I guess the way I would I would boil it down is I think, you know, the first point and what I try to really get across in, in my book in through different angles is that what drives capitalism, you know, we have to be clear about what drives capitalism and how the profit motive works, uh, because without that understanding, it really changes our ability to make demands and what kind of demands we, we make. Um, you know, basically, the profit is not a thing that can be reasoned with. You know, you can't hope that Jeff Bezos will come around to respecting workers because we've made a good argument, we've, you know, exposed him. Um, you know, you can't trust that some of our supposed liberal friends like Andrew Cuomo, um, where I live, are going to keep us safe when they're faced with plummeting profits in their state and therefore, you know, plummeting state budgets. The, the, the profit motive reigns supreme. And so it has, we have to be clear and sober about what that means. And, um, and how and how that can change. You can't have a humane profit motive. Um, so so that for us, that means we need to actually push for highly regulated corporations, highly regulated profits um, that actually goes against the interest of the capitalist class. It has to be a fight, um, you know, in the same way that the um, fight over over wages is similar to the fight over safety conditions, that it's a battle of interest. Um, and it has to be clear who's on what side of the fight and based on what is it, you know, where do their interests lay? Um, so I think that that's the first point. And then the second point I would say is that these struggles are connected and they're of one piece, right? You can't fight exploitation um, without fighting racial oppression or other oppressions. You can't fight for public health safety without understanding ecological sustainability. Um, and it's not that I think we have to fight everything all at once. Um, we have to be strategic and pick our battles, but I think we need a framework that understands all of these pieces together in order to be, in order to build the most effective and united fight um, that that connects these um, struggles, that builds the the links um, in a practical way on the ground. Um, and I think you know the last point is that we have to think big in terms of vision and solutions. You know the system is in the complete. Uh, crisis. It's being exposed, um, like we've talked about, in every possible way. Um, and we have the Republicans and the Democrats offering no solutions whatsoever, um, you know, playing political football with stimulus packages um, and, you know, not not making any um, real salute, not putting up any real solutions um, that, that get to the heart of what of, of the crisis, both the immediate crisis and the longer term crisis. Um, and we, I think in this context, should do everything we can to put forward a politics and a vision that makes sense to broad layers of society. And I think ultimately that is what is so important about Marxism is it actually makes sense. You know, it makes sense of people's lives. It's not an abstract theory that you read about in the books. It's the thing that you read that makes you go, aha, uh -huh, right, that is what I've been feeling. And that makes sense of the thing that I've been trying to figure out. Um, you know, and that's, that's the, um, that, that's the power of Marxism. And we're, we're likely headed towards a deep and protracted depression, you know, where 
state budgets, um, you know, are, are tanking and that's going to mean austerity on the local level. There's going to be battles um, that take place for, for the coming years. And that's going to provide the underlying context uh, for labor, social and economic battles ahead. Um, and within these desperate conditions, it's also, you know, the, the, the ways that capitalism has been exposed, not in the thousands, but in the millions um, of, of people. Um, and we can, I think, broaden our horizons to speak to those people, um, because I think the future and direction of our economy and our society is going to be determined by the struggles um, ahead in the coming months and years. So I, I will I'll leave it at that. Uh, it's been an hour, and that is a perfect place to leave it. So thank you so much, Hadas. Hadas Deer is an activist, writer, socialist, and my co-worker at Jacobin Magazine. And today, as you've seen, we are celebrating the launch of her new book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. So please be on the lookout for that book. Thank you so much, Hadas, and thank you to everyone who watched today's program, and thank you to Haymarket Books. And that's it. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.